But without further ado, we're going to be in Psalm 14. We're actually finishing our summer series today. I was going to finish it next week, but uh, the Lord's been having fun with me as I'm pre- preparing my sermons, and I keep changing things as we go. So, uh, and so next week we have a standalone for our kickoff, and then we are finally back in the letter to the First Corinthians by Paul, a very challenging but encouraging letter, and I look forward to getting back into the verses. I hope you're in your Bible by now, Psalm chapter 14. We will read through the first part of the psalm, or through the, through the psalm, and then we will begin to break it down. It says, starting in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You should shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel to come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to share with you just some of the religious insights and pictures into Canada. And it's always, uh, it's always a dangerous thing to share stats from the pulpit because you can be easily fact-checked. And there's so many different stats out there, and they're always changing from year to year. But I'm just going to share with you the latest data that I could find on the religious picture, specifically Christian religion in Canada. And this information might be shocking to some of you, and this information might not be shocking to others. But the fastest growing religious group in Canada is called the religious nuns. And now I'm not talking about Catholic nuns. I'm talking about none, like nothing. Uh, Sociologists of religion call these guys the religious nuns. Approximately one quarter of Canadian adults and one third of Canadian teens do not identify with a religion. Unlike previous generations of religious nuns, because they've always been around, the previous generations were a little bit more, had a little bit more religious attitudes and spiritual attitudes because it was cultural. If you weren't living in the morals that the country put out, which were very much Christian morals for the longest time, then uh, you weren't fitting in. Uh, So in the past, they were a little bit more maybe religious but now they are way more secular because our world has went into moral chaos, and we'll get to that in a moment. We live in Alberta, though, and it might not always feel like that, especially in small-town Alberta where we're very much conservative in our political realms and whatnot, and, and we often make the same mistake that the Americans do by thinking, hey, I'm Albertan, which means I'm Christian. That's not true, just by the way, sorry to burst your bubble. Or I voted conservative, that must mean I'm a Christian. Again, that is not true. If people were being very honest about these questionnaires that the government sends out, I would assume that that number of religious nuns would actually be a lot higher. And another thing that would probably make the number just a little bit higher is if we had a correct definition of the word atheism and what that means. Now, I think we all know atheism means the belief that there is no God, 
right? Theism means the belief in God. A means no. So atheism means no God. And if we had a fuller, proper definition of what atheism meant, I think we would see those statistics rise even higher. For instance, there are three groups of atheists. Now, these are three broad groups. There could be nuance in those. I'm not going to all that detail. But the three broad groups are, the first one is philosophical atheism, or maybe you've heard it called deism. Now, deism is the belief that there is a higher power. There is a creator, and he or she or whatever it is, uh, they created the earth. They wound the earth up like a wind-up toy and just let it spin out of control and see what happens. This creator has no interest in really interacting with their creation. I remember my physics teacher years ago, he said that we are just living in God's dream, waiting for him to wake up. That's deism. Then there's dogmatic atheism, and this is probably the atheism that we all think of when we think of atheism. Now, I put it second in the list because deism is actually the larger category. There are lots of secular scientists who believe in uh, a higher power of some sort or creative design, intelligent design, but they're not Christian. But it's a large category, but what we see at the forefront of the news and academia are people who are dogmatic in their atheism. These are like the Richard Dawkins if you know who that is, of the world. They're in your face. They say to you, hey, you're stupid because you believe in God, and I'm smart because I don't. doesn't matter how many titles or, or letters you have behind your name. The fact that you believe in God makes you an idiot. That's what they believe, and they use that language. They're very much in your face. They're very evangelistic about their, uh, uh, about their atheism, and they are going to be dogmatic about it. And then thirdly, which I think is the biggest one, especially here in Alberta, is practical, functional atheism. And what is that? Well, practical, functional atheism is the idea, yeah, I go to church. Sure, I do the religious things. Yeah, I call myself a Christian, but I'm not really concerned about God. God has really no bearing on my life at all. I just like to go through the religious picture and, and rituals because it makes me feel connect to something bigger than me but it has no bearing on my life. It's practical, it's functional, but it's not true Christianity. I just do the things to make myself feel like I fit in. Now, if we were to take deism and we were to take dogmatic atheism and this practical functional atheism, we add them together. I don't know how large that number is, and you don't want me doing math. It's just not my strong suit. But I'm sure it would be a lot and huge because there's a lot of people in Canada who fall into one of these categories. And scripture has some strong words against atheism. And our passage today has strong language for atheists. And you could say this isn't very popular passage in their ranks. Going back to verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first thing I want to say is, if you're here and you're an atheist, thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. I understand how hard it is to walk through the doors of a church. It has so much stigma with it, and, and everybody seemingly knows each other, and they're singing songs and saying words I don't understand. Thanks for being here. It's a hard step to take. And I want to encourage you to just open and be listening to what David has to say to you. David wrote this psalm, King David of Israel, and I want you to hear him out. And you might be surprised at where he goes at in the end of this psalm. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you're thinking, sweet, 
finally, I get a week off. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a fool. So I'm just going to put my feet up, fall asleep like I always do anyways. And, uh, and I, get, I, I get to relax today. I want to encourage you to hear David out as well because you might see yourself as a fool in these passages more than you think. And the reason why I picked Psalm 14 is because this psalm is instructive for those who don't believe in God, who might be joining us today in person or who might be listening online. And you might be thinking, well, why would they join with us? What's the point of someone who doesn't believe in God joining with us? And there's many reasons. You might be surprised. And secondly, church, it's good for us as Christians to know and understand uh, uh, the unbelieving heart and mind because we are supposed to be evangelizing. Every single one of us in these chairs are called and given the Great Commission. We are to be ready to give a defense for our faith. We should be ready to share the gospel. Every single one of us are called to be a light in this world. There is no such thing as a secret service Christian. You are all to shine your lights. Amen? Amen. So it would be helpful for you to understand how the mind and heart of an unbeliever works. So when you share the gospel with them, you can be more patient with them. And this should be a big picture of what we're doing here in the valley is reaching to the community and sharing the love of Jesus with them, proclaiming the gospel to them. And this is what David's laying out for us today. So we're going to work through uh, four parts of uh, the passage today. Uh, we're, we're not going to walk right from verse 1 to the end. We're going to follow, with a lot of the Psalms, you have to follow the theme rather than you follow the verses. So we're going to hit all the verses, but we're going to be jumping around a little bit today. And the four parts we're walking through are the fool's heart, the fool's deeds, the fool's identity, and lastly and most importantly, the fool's salvation. So let's start with number one, which is the fool's heart. Let's again read that verse, verse one, uh, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the fool's heart. And then we're just going to kind of briefly move through the other three categories. So it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the fool says there is no God. He says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And that's a big difference between just, uh, just what the fool says and what he believes in his heart. Here's why. Because we live in the Western world, which is a very Greek-influenced world, not a Hebrew-influenced world, but a Greek-influenced world. And this means that we, when we think of the person, we think of the mind. We think of the intellect their thoughts. We think of the center of the person as their intellect. And, what, and so what is true and what I think is true, what is rational must be true. If it's not rational, it can't be true. It's very Greek philosophically minded society that we live in. However, the Hebrew world, the mind is not the center of the person. The heart is the center of the person. Now, I'm not talking about that organ that's in your chest that's pumping blood throughout your body. Rather, in biblical terms, the heart means the passions, the desire, and the will of a person. That's the center of the person. That's what drives a person. And I would submit to you today, church, that is still what drives the person, not the brain, not the mind, not the intellect. Now, in our world, in our Greek-influenced world, we would say the intellect. We would say it's the mind that drives the person, but Scripture and I would argue against that. And just for another quick point of clarification, we clarified heart. The word fool in Scripture does not mean dumb. 
The word fool in scripture does not mean intellectually challenged. Fool is a person, as David says, in his heart, in his will, in his passions, his desires, don't want there to be a God. They don't want there to be God. That's what David's saying. And you might have already been applying this in your mind to Romans chapter 1, and I'm glad you did. Because Romans 1, 18 to 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. For although they knew God, that's, that's interesting, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, what? Hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds, animals, and even creeping things. Oh, we are, sorry, way behind. <laughs> so are you hearing what Paul is saying? Paul says everybody intellectually knows that there is a God. There is evidence for God's existence. Everybody knows this. However, he's saying some people suppress the truth. They push that truth down because they desire, they do not want to believe it. There is a desire, a passion, a will, a motive in their life for not wanting there to be a God. So the question that we ask isn't, do you intellectually believe there is a God? The question we should ask is, do you want there to be a God? It's a difference. Because what drives us as humans is our desire, not our minds, but our desire. As you notice in verse 23 of Romans, they, he says they actually exchange the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Here's what Paul is saying. They know there's a God. But if they admit that there is a God that is, that is not created, but is the creator, what that means as created beings, they will need to submit to him. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to submit to God. They only want to be God uh, over things of this earth. So they worship things of this earth. They worship the things that can't control them because they are created. Meaning they worship things that they don't have to answer to. So really what this boils down to is fundamentally it's been the problem since the Garden of Eden. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in control of our own lives. And we want to usurp God's authority from our life. It's ingrained in us as fallen sinners. Anyone who has kids will understand this concept well. I'm sure you will. I'm sure many of you, especially you who have preteens or teenagers, or maybe you have raised them in the past, you know what it's like trying to get them motivated to leave the house. Right? You go to them and you say, you, you have 20 minutes. We're leaving. Get ready. What happens? You check on them in 15 minutes, and they're not even dressed. And you hit the ceiling, right? And what do they say back to you? Well, I didn't hear you. Yeah, they did. They heard you. They just didn't want to hear you because they are driven by their desires, like all of us. They want you to think that it was an intellectual problem by stating, hey, I didn't hear you. But really, it was a desire problem. They didn't want to hear you because they didn't want to get ready. 
And, they, and what it all boils down to, again, which is the problem of all of us, is this autonomy issue. They don't want dad or mom telling them what to do. I will get ready when I want to get ready. Now, when I was being raised, we met the belt when we said that, right? It just, that doesn't happen anymore, but uh, that's why I'm a pastor and they're not, I guess. So, no, I'm kidding. But this is a desire problem. It's a desire problem. All humans have heart problems. They have wicked hearts, the Bible says. Our hearts are exceedingly wicked. This is what the psalmist is saying. This is what David is saying. The fool is the one who doesn't believe in God. They don't, they don't believe in God because they don't want because they don't want God to control their life. They want to be their own God. They want to be in control. And some of you may be saying, that can't be. Aaron, what you're saying is that it's so clear that God exists, that no one can deny it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what Paul is saying too. The evidence is so clear. Hear this, church. No one is a non-believer because of lack of evidence. But rather, they are non-believers because of lack of desire. Now, I think Jonathan Edwards helps us out here a bit. He says, a man never in any instance wills anything contrary to his desires or desires anything contrary to his will. What he's saying is that the center of our being is what drives us. It's it's our desires, what we love and what our passions are. So what that means is we is what we will to do is what we will always uh, sorry what we will do is what we always desire to do, and some of you might say that can't be true, Aaron. You know how I know that because I'm dieting right now, and I can tell you right now I don't want to be on a diet, but that you're committing a philosophical fallacy when you state that, because even though you might want the cake or in my instance ice cream, it's my weakness, even though you might want the junk food. What you desire most in that moment is to be skinny. What you desire most in that moment is to be healthy and not the cake. But if you have moments of weakness like I do every day, even just after an hour of dieting, I smell that cake bacon and I go, yeah, I desire to be skinny. But man, oh man, do I desire that cake. And my wife bakes really good. So it's a struggle in my house. So you always do what you desire most to do. And you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. Even as Christians who have been given the Holy Spirit, who have been saved by Jesus, and our desires are being changed, but they're not 100% there, are they? Because we still are living in the flesh. That's why I believe the Lord inspired Paul to write Romans chapter 7. Because it gives us encouragement that even the Apostle Paul still struggled with things. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So our desires are changing, yes, via the Holy Spirit. But the only reason we sin, the only reason you and I as redeemed Christians still sin is because there are still times in our life that we desire sin more than we desire Jesus. We desire something above Christ. And we won't admit that, but that's why you and I still sin. We always do what we most desire. So if someone holds a gun at your head, says, give me your wallet or I'm shooting, I really hope you have a choice between your life and your wallet, and I really hope you choose your life over your wallet. And that's a big statement from a Dutchman. Man, you guys are hard today. (laughs) And you hopefully will pick your life, right? The Bible's saying there is no shortage of evidence that God exists, that we were created, 
that the Bible is reliable, that the resurrection of Christ happened. And some of you might go, well, tell us then. Tell us all those reasons. And I could fill the next 20 minutes of this sermon with 14 reasons why God exists, for why the Bible has been authentically and without error translated throughout the, without, uh, uh, throughout history, that we're reading the same manuscripts that they had back in the early church. I could point all that out to you, but that would defeat the purpose of what David is arguing for in Psalm 14. What David is saying is that no amount of information that I can give you or facts are going to convince anyone into the kingdom of God because it's a matter of the heart. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that having reasons, having facts, having the truth is bad. I'm not encouraging you as followers of Jesus not to study those things, be equipped in those things. I'm not saying that you don't engage and be trained in the science of apologetics, which is defending your faith. We should be doing those things. The Bible says we should be ready and willing to give an account, a testimony, a reason for our faith. But what I'm saying is that the foundation of your apologetics, of your evangelism, should be that it's a heart issue rather than a fact issue. Just because you think you didn't give the facts clear enough is not the reason why someone didn't accept Christ at your invitation. The Lord might use all of that in the process of evangelism, but that's not the reason why someone gets saved. No, they need to, nobody needs to be convinced into the kingdom. Because there's so much proof. It wouldn't be hard. It's often posed like this when I'm talking to people out on the streets. I'm unwilling to believe because I haven't been convinced. And I always challenge them. I'm saying, no, you're unwilling to be convinced because you're unwilling to believe. They don't know how to answer that. You can't convince the fool who has said in their heart, there is no God. Now, typically, there are two reasons why someone doesn't want there to be a God. We've been hinting at this. The first is because of the sin of autonomy, the issue of autonomy. They want full autonomy over their lives. They don't want to answer to anyone. They want to be their own God. Now, I have a couple short quotes from past famous philosophers who were atheists, who were honest about their atheism, and I love that they were honest about their atheism. One of them is a man named Elvis Huxley. He was an English writer, a philosopher. He actually died on the same day as C.S. Lewis, interesting enough, who was an atheist who converted to Christianity, if you didn't know. And what he said is, remember, he's an atheist, he says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy, philosophy of meaningless, which is meaning there is no God or meaning, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't want to believe in God because I don't want to live differently than I'm currently living. I, don't, I want to be free from that, that the, and not bound by that system of morality. He was honest. He's saying it wasn't an intellectual problem at all. I just didn't want there to be a God. The other quote is from Thomas Nagel. He's still alive. He taught philosophy at Oxford University, New York, uh, University in New York. And I'm not sure if he still teaches anymore. He's in his late 80s. But he is also an atheist. He was also honest. He says, I'm an atheist to be true. And I am made uneasy, I love this, by the fact that some of the most intelligent and informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope that there, there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Want, 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 want. See what he's saying? 
It's the same thing as Huxley before him. He's saying, I don't want there to be a God. I don't care how much evidence you show me. I'm not confessing it. He even says, I know people, some of the most intelligent people, and they're believers, and that annoys me. It gets under his skin. I don't want there to be a God. So the first reason is autonomy. The second one is the problem of evil. And this is a very common one for many people. When you talk with people who are not believers about God, this will most definitely come up. They say things like, I know all the bad things that have happened to me, or I see all the bad things that are happening in the world, and there is no way that if God is loving and he existed, that he would allow those things to happen. And listen, as sad as that is, and as sorry as I am that anyone experiences these bad things, that's the exact same reason to not believe as the autonomy issue which all boils down to the fact that I get to determine what God is like if he exists. That's the same belief. Thomas Nagel, Nagel sorry, and, and, and uh, Elvis Huxley would have said, as long as God is okay with my moral spectrum, I am fine. This person who says, I have been through a lot of bad things, I've seen a lot of bad things, I've heard a lot of bad things, there is no way that God exists because look at what's going on in the world today. That person is saying the exact same thing. What they're saying is that God can only exist if he looks like how I think he should look, if he acts like how I think he should act. And if he doesn't, then he doesn't exist, and I refuse to worship a God who would let any of these things happen to me or to other people. And I'm, not say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm talking about the philosophy behind it, so I know this is a very emotional subject, and you want to reason and love and listen to people when they're sharing these hard things. This is not the time to get in a philosophical battle with them. This is a time to cry with them and say, I know life is hard. Life is so hard. So the fool's heart, the fool says in his heart, I will not believe. I don't want to believe. Those are the main two reasons, the main two reasons why people refuse to believe in God. So we've looked at the fool's heart. Now we're going to kind of briefly move through the last three, which the second one is the fool's deeds. Look at the second part of verse 1 with me. And then we're going to kind of skip to verse 4 and 6. He says, uh, he says in, in the end of verse 2, or 1, he says, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And now verse 4. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Verse 5. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. So what he is saying is that those who don't believe in God, he's not just talking about individuals, but now he's shifting and talking about culture. He says a society that doesn't believe in God is in moral chaos. Does that not sound like Canada? We're learning that real quick. A society that has moved away from God goes into moral chaos. We now are living in something called a post-Christian nation. We no longer have the moral authority that we used to have. And now our culture has spun out into moral chaos. He says, he says, because there is no God, it says that the plans of the poor are ashamed or thwarted, the poor are oppressed, the righteous, or you can say the believers in God, the Christians, the believers are persecuted. And what this means is that when you have a creator... When you don't have a creator, sorry, when you don't believe in God, there is no standard for any type of morality in your life. There is nothing to stand on if you don't have a moral constant, if you don't have a God. And David just wants to point this out, saying the fool says in his 
heart there is no God. And for that person, they have no standard to say anything is right or wrong. We can't have morals without a creator. The world's morals today, what are they coming from? They're coming from the opinions and speculations of people. And what happens with that? They change. They're not constant. They're a, they, they, they blow like the wind. They just evolve over time. I'll give you an example. In the past, I'm sure everyone knows this. It shouldn't be a surprise. But racism and sexism were legal in our society. You know what book has always said those are wrong? Despite what anyone was ignoring or saying? The Bible. Regardless of what people promote in the past, the Bible has always said racism and sexism are bad. Why? Because here's the moral authority. The Bible has a standard of truth, which we are governed by as Christians, that the Lord created the heavens and the earth. He created it all. He created human beings in what? In his image, in his likeness. And then he gave them dignity, value, and worth because they were created after his image. Therefore, regardless of their sex, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their socioeconomic backgrounds, they were valued and they were worth. You should read the laws that Israel had about the poor. It's very beautiful. Therefore, regardless of any of those things, they had value. And if you don't have that, if you don't have a moral constant, who are you to say that racism is wrong? Says who? What are you basing that on? Is it just your opinion or speculation? Who says that sexism is wrong? Says who? Well, our culture does. Strongly. But why? Because the Bible. No. Can't be because of the Bible. It's because we are just more evolved people, and now we've just decided that people are happier when you're not mean to them. Says who? Who gets to make that determination? Why is that okay? Why do I have to be nice to people? Says who? Why is it not okay? By what standard are you basing your morals on? Because in today's society, we have nothing to base these morals on. They change like we change our clothing. They change with people. One day, one thing is okay to say and true to say. The next day, you're in jail because you're a bigot. That was just true yesterday. And you can't say it anymore. Because there is nothing to base anything on. There is no moral standard that does not change. God does not change. And we can base it upon him. So thankfully, let me say it if it's not clear. Thankfully, racism and sexism are illegal. I just want to go on the record to say that. Now, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm not that naive. I believe they still exist. But they are no longer legal. But however... And I want to be very sensitive as as we move into this subject. There is something very much legalized in our country. And what we do is we change definitions to get there because there is no moral standard to base these on. So what we get is this redefinition of terms. So what we know is wrong doesn't sound wrong anymore. Things like murder, right? This is what the Nazis did. They dehumanized the Jews and the other people that they were attacking so that the people committing these atrocities wouldn't feel as guilty as they were for taking the life of a human. They dehumanized them. Everyone knows murder is wrong unless you're some psychopath. Like, no one's going to sit at your life group and say, hey, you know what, I just want to clear the air on something. I have an opinion that might ruffle some feathers, but I really don't think murder is wrong. Like, nobody's going to come out and say that. Because we fundamentally as people have it ingrained in us as image bearers of God that we know we're not supposed to be pro-murder. And yet what has happened today in the walking away from God's word and the redefining of things like life and baby 
we can now terminate them without batting an eye. We can now commit atrocities in the womb without batting an eye. We can take life at the end because they're too old, they're too frail. Let's just hand them maid. Our culture is a culture of death. And we as Christians have a standard to fight for life. We have a standard to fight for life. But there is no reason, if you're not a Christian, what reason do you have to be against things like maid? What, things do you, what, what reason do you have to be against things like abortion? There is, there is the natural progression if you follow the atheistic mindset. At the end of the day, you can say all you want till you're blue in the face that things are right and wrong, but you have no footing to make those claims. Because at the end of the day, you believe that we are just blobs of cells that are floating around on some random rock that has oxygen, and it's all random and meaningless. So why do I treat people with dignity? Why does it matter? But because we are Christians, because we have a moral standard, we can say it is wrong and here is why. That unborn children, that senior citizen, that mental health patient, they have value, dignity, and respect. And it is wrong in what you're doing. And we can stand. They have worth because they are image bearers of God. Amen? It's the only reason we know it's wrong, David says, is because God is the moral constant. If you don't have gods, you don't have morals. Number three is the fool's identity. Remember at the beginning I said, hey, Christian, don't go to sleep. This is where you can find yourself in here, right? In the last part of verse one, he says, none does good. Nobody does good. Everybody does evil. And so look at verses two to three. He says, uh, he says sorry, um, where am I at? Yeah, the deeds, there we are. Uh, the, fool, uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside and they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So who's the fool? It's the person who says in heart there is no God. Okay, well, but what about the rest of us who say there is a God? Well, you used to be a fool and now you're not. Those are the only two categories that exist in life. You either used to be a fool or you presently are one. The category doesn't exist as, oh, I was never a fool. I was raised in a Christian home. I've always been a Christian, and now, and now I'm still not a fool. No, there was a time when Christ entered your heart. Or maybe you think you're not a fool, but you are one. But we'll discuss that maybe at another time. <laughs> But maybe you recognize some of the wording here. Again, this is found in Romans chapter 3. Paul is quoting Psalm chapter 14 and a couple other Psalms. And Paul in Romans 3 is trying to convince us believers that all people are equal in their standing and in sin, that, uh, that are all need of salvation. And Paul uses this quote by saying, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, not at all, for we have already charged that, uh, uh, charged that all, both Jew and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass are under their lips. Their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's everyone, church, before Christ. Everyone, including me. We were either fools, we were, e- were either fools, or we were, and now we're not. So first, the fool's heart. Second, the fool's deeds. Third, the fool's identity, which was all of us, and maybe still presently some of us. And then the last part, which we desperately need to get to, is the fool's salvation. What is the salvation that is offered to the fool? Look at verse 7. It says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. If you were to go back in time when this was written, which was around 700-ish BC, so about 2,700-ish years ago, when David wrote this, he would have been able to look up at the hill called Zion where the, ta- where the temple was, at that time the tabernacle, right? Uh, in Israel, uh, he would be able to look at Zion and, and, and write these words. The temple, which we read mostly about in Exodus, is the place which was erected then built permanently for God to meet with man. And God, although he desires to be with man, man was so sinful and God is so holy and there had to be mediation between the two. There had to be separation or man would be swallowed up in the holiness of God because impurity cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So what would happen is in the temple, one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a one-year-old unblemished lamb, and he would place his hands on the head of that lamb. He would confess the sins of Israel over it. Kids, plug your ears. Then he would take a knife, he would slit the throat, and he'd put the blood on the mercy seat. And that, w- that would be a sign of God's wrath being poured out on an innocent one-year-old lamb for the sins of the people so that God didn't pour his wrath out on the people like they deserved. Rather, the lamb got it. And then he would take one more lamb, he would lay his hands on that head, he would confess those same sins, and then they would take it to the outskirts of town and kick it out of the camp. And this would be a sign that the sin has left the camp. And they called this the scapegoat. And it symbolizes that the sins were gone, that they were paid for by that first lamb. And this all happened on Zion, in the temple. And and Jesus comes in John chapter 2, and what does he say? He says, I am the temple. He says, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up again. He's saying, you're going to kill me, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise. I am the temple. And then just in John chapter 1, one chapter before, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? He says, behold, who's coming? Who knows? The Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the Old Testament sacrifices are pointing to Jesus, meaning the temple is pointing to Jesus, right? Where is man and God reconciled? In Jesus, in the temple where the sacrifice happened. And that second goat that was kicked out out of the outskirts of town, where was Jesus crucified? on the outer skirts of town, symbolizing that our sins are taken away. This is how God dwells with man. And the sacrifice, the one-year-old blemished lamb is Jesus. That is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is is the unblemished lamb who has never sinned. 613 commandments, he never, he never broke one. He never broke one of them. He paid the penalty 
for us. So on him, our sin would be laid and his righteousness on us would be given. uh, And so when the father looks at us, he no longer sees our deeds, but he sees the deeds of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That is how the fool is saved. This means if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that's how you were saved. Not because you woke up and got smart one day. Not because you, were, you, you stopped being a fool one day by your own power. Not because you saw enough evidence one day and you intellectually believed that there was a God and that Jesus was God. No, you were saved fundamentally by the blood of the Lamb. I was saved by the blood of the Lamb. The fool is saved by the blood of the Lamb. Not by intellectual assent, but by the sacrifice of Christ. And if you're here, you're not a Christian. I don't want you to mishear me or David. I'm not saying you're not smart and believers are smart because we believe in God. That would be the same thing as dogmatic atheism. What David is saying is that we are all fools. We can all, uh, we can all know and understand what we're talking about. Yet some of us, in admitting that we are fools, became not fools by Christ. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But those who are saved, it's no longer foolishness, but it's the power of Christ, of God. So if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably lost just how ridiculous the gospel sounds. So let me remind you. Imagine you were talking to your non-Christian friend. You've just detailed how angry God is at sin, how much wrath he wants to pour out, how we have all fallen short, that we all deserve that wrath. And then he goes, whoa, that sounds pretty crazy. God must be angry with us. What does he do in his sin? What does he do in his anger, sorry? And, you're not, and, and, and then you say to him, well, what happens is God becomes man, he lives a perfect life. He dies the death we should have died. He rose again, and now he's given us righteousness instead of wrath. And your friend goes, whoa, 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 time out. What are you talking about? You're, you just told me that God was so angry with us, but then he gave us something that we didn't deserve? And you, you're excited. You're like, yeah, you understand. He's going to save. And he goes, that's foolishness. That doesn't make sense. Because you know what it sounds like to those who are outside of Christ? It sounds like charity. Sounds like charity to them. And many non-Christians believe this to be too good to be true. Where's the catch? Where's the bait and switch? I came here for a timeshare, I guess. I don't know what's happening. Like, what, what's going on? Like, it's too good to be true. I hear this all the time talking to non-believers on the street. Something along the lines of like, I just can't believe that God could be so angry with sin and then he can just wipe it all away with one death and then give me something I don't deserve. We don't do that. Humans don't do that. It's too good to be true. What's the catch? And only those in Christ can actually love and understand this and believe this. It doesn't sound like foolishness anymore. But those who are perishing, it sounds like foolishness. So the question is, as we close, what is the scandalous, if it's such a scandalous idea, if it's the greatest mercy love story ever to be told, why does anyone believe it? Why don't we all just claim that it's too good to be true? Well, it all lays in the fact that we were given a new heart by God. Because remember, in verse 1, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Christian, you did nothing intellectually. You did nothing to change your passions. You were given a new heart, a new desire. That's what happened. The reason why you all of a sudden became attracted to Jesus is because the Lord of heaven and earth, your creator, put a new heart in you so that you would desire Jesus, that you would then be attracted to Jesus. 
That's what happened. So Ephesians 2 tells us you ought not to boast in yourself because you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear me say this. The only difference between you and some of those that are maybe around you is simply that the Lord has done something in their lives that he has not yet presently done in your life. And we're going to pray at the end of this sermon that he will do that in your life. But it's not your intellectual scent that's going to get you there. You might think and believe that's why, but you're fooling self. There is no amount of information that I could tell you today, this morning, that would change that would change the way you think, that you go, you know what, if your heart hasn't been changed, you go, oh yeah, I agree with you. No, your heart must be changed. It has to be from the Holy Spirit. So there's two categories today, the fool and the non-fool, the Christian and the non-Christian. Non-Christian, if you're here this morning, what a weird Sunday for you to be on. What a weird text that you just happened to stumble upon. And I just want you to know this. There is a God who created everything. And he is a good and perfect God. And although you and I have sinned, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. So if we trust in his works, we are forgiven. However, I can't convince you of this. And I know that. And I'm not going to try. Your heart must be changed. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that. And please, if you have any questions, ask them. We love questions at this church. If you ever end up in a church that says don't ask questions, run. You're in a cult. Okay, get out of there. We want your questions. We have good answers to your intellectual questions, but I just know that the answer is not the reason why you're going to get saved. You must have a heart change. Now, number two, you Christians. Oh, you Christians. If you're a Christian this morning and you share your faith and you're trying to make disciples like we're called to do, be it at work, your school, in your community, with your neighbors, what's your approach? What are you relying on? Do you believe the lie that if you have all the right answers, if you're so persuasive that they're going to surrender their lives to Jesus, and if you stumble your words too much, well, too bad you blew it. Hopefully God can save them by someone else. Take that pressure off yourself. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people to Jesus, not you. He might use you. He might use your answers. He might use the gospel that you're preaching. But it's not on you. It's on God. No, I'm not saying you shouldn't have answers. You shouldn't be trained. You should be doing all those things. You should be ready, but have a foundation that says God alone saves, not me. I'm just the tool that he gets to use. And that's, I I don't know. I don't know why he picked me as a tool. I'm not the best tool. But he uses the imperfect things to get his mission across this world. Amen? Amen? That's our job. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, I thank you, Father, for the many in our church, God, who are lovers of you, who know you and serve you and desire you. And, many, and Lord, I also acknowledge the ones who come who don't know you, who are either pretending or are searching or are just here by chance, O oh God. Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would soften their hearts. I, Father, I pray that you would take their heart of stone and you give them a heart of flesh. Father, that they would hear not my words, but the words of your word, Lord, from David and from Paul today, and God, that it would penetrate their hearts. Father, that the foolishness would begin to dissipate, and Lord, that they would begin to see the cross and what you've done upon it as the power of God for their life. Lord, we want to see Drumheller saved. Father, we want to see those lost souls that are dying saved. Use us, O God, as a church. 
to extend out into the kingdom of darkness and start populating the kingdom of heaven with the lost souls, O God. Use us, O God, humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.